I want to ask if you have your copy of God's Word to turn with me to the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5. Going to be continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount, and tonight we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 26. And I would ask that if you're able to, please stand for the reading of the Word of God. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. These are the words of Jesus. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Least your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. You join with me in a word of prayer. Father God, Father, we, we just rejoice and we bask in your presence tonight. Lord, we just ask for the fellowship of the Holy Spirit tonight as we look into your word. Lord, we know that our carnal minds in the flesh alone cannot understand and truly grasp things of the Spirit of God. Therefore, we need him to interpret these things to us. And we would ask that he would do that in an amazing and an incredible way tonight. Uh, Truly, dear God, as a preacher, I I am dependent upon your grace, for without that, all of this is done in vain, dear Lord. Lord, I just pray that your word would be made known to your people tonight, that the sheep would hear the shepherd's voice, and that this word of God that we are going to be receiving would have a powerful, transforming, and abiding impact on all of our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you may be seated. As previously mentioned, we are continuing our study through the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, you know, as, as we begin tonight's study, it, it will be helpful for us to just at least first remind us of some of the things that we have gone over already uh, in the course of this sermon series, not only just as our own refresher, but in, in my personal opinion, I'm, I'm going to talk about some of these things. The latter half of Matthew chapter two is Matthew chapter five, excuse me, is often very much abused uh, and mishandled by people, and and I, I really think that the reason that people make so many errors in this chapter is that they forget what Jesus said in verses seventeen through twenty. In uh, verses seventeen through twenty, which we've covered in previous sermons. Christ is telling us that contrary to what the Jews may accuse him of doing, Jesus, his ministry and and his teaching, he's not at odds with, he's not altering or changing or disagreeing what is written in the law of the prophets, what we would call the Old Testament scriptures, what the Jews would call the Tanakh. And, And so Jesus says in verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so the issue 
that he's going to be dealing with then is found in verse 20 when he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. That is a transitional verse, which brings us into the rest of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is specifically going to be rebuking the Pharisees. The reason that I, that I bring up that, that extra information that it's not the Old Testament he disagrees with will be very plain as we get into the next verse. Or really, uh, verse 21, when Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. I, I want to first deal with that phrase when Jesus says there in Matthew 5, verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Um, a variation of that same language is going to be found six times in the rest of the chapter. And of course, this is the fir first. And so the error that people make is that they interpret what Jesus is saying here as a way of bringing up or introducing an Old Testament citation. And then what people will do is they will suggest that Jesus, he's going to quote the Scripture and then he's going to disagree with it and, and he's going to change it or, or, or co combat it. Um, the problem with that sort of interpretation is that it, it completely and utterly contradicts what Jesus said just a few verses ago. So how some people can think that Jesus is going to disagree with or change or challenge the Old Testament Scriptures when just... Literally on the same page, he says, not one dot or iota is going to pass, the law is accomplished. How someone could come to that interpretation is completely beyond me. But, of course, we have to realize something. The, the reason that people arrive at this conclusion is not, obviously, due to a faithful, careful examination and exegesis of the biblical text, but rather is because people have false theological commitments and assumptions about the nature of Scripture which they want to force into the text. I'm going to give you an example. Uh, this is, so, uh, the, recently there was a, I shouldn't really use the term debate, but sort of an online dialogue or discussion, and it was between two uh, conservative Christian apologists and a, a homosexual Christian apologist. Basically, uh, uh, and, and I'm not trying to be, you know, sound like I'm mocking here, but essentially two people who believe the Scriptures and the traditional understanding and, and, and someone who wants to uh, force the Scriptures to teach or to encourage and to satisfy his lusts. And uh, so what the conservative Christian apologists are doing is they're, they're saying to this gentleman, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to just ground their theology and their beliefs from the Word of God and the, the liberal that was in the dialogue was trying to point to this section here in Matthew 5 and say, but look, Jesus was, was willing to change what the Bible uh, was saying. And, and so I, I want to, and so the reason that they do that is because they have something that they want the Bible to say that they know the Bible doesn't say. And so they have to sort of use uh, hermeneutical and exegetical gymnastics to arrive at this conclusion. But think, think about this for a moment. So if you've been raised in the church, you, you know, your whole life you're told 
that, that the Bible is the Word of God. It's, it's the Word of God. Well, if the Bible is the Word of God, then it, it, can't, it can't contradict itself. Uh, in 2 Timothy, Paul uses a Greek term, theonustos. We've covered that before. Theos referring to God. Neustos, you've heard of pneumatic tools. Those are air tools. So Paul says theonustos, and what that means is God-breathed. And Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed. Think of an, an illustration that I've heard is, you know, as you're talking, if you put your hand in, in front of your mouth and you feel the breath coming out, that's, that's what the Bible is, but it's God speaking. And so, if the Scripture is the very Word, if the Scripture is the very message of God Himself, well, Scripture by nature, Scripture by virtue of what it is, cannot contradict itself, for God cannot lie. And, and furthermore, if we were trying to say that, because a lot of people sadly have this belief, they have this understanding that like, the Old Testament God is this mean God and he's this way and then Jesus comes along and he, he's a nice sort of God and, and he sort of corrects the mistakes of the Old Testament. But, but the reality is that, that that is just not the case. Jesus is Yahweh. He is the God of both Old and New Testaments. You know, earlier in this series we talked about a, a heretic in the early church by the name of Marcion who, who sort of believed that. He believed that the Old Testament God was, was bad, the New Testament God was, was good. He, he had such a radical discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments that he essentially had two different gods. And so we don't want to repeat those errors. We want to seek to find the harmony and the consistency that is in our Bibles. So Jesus... He, Jesus is the same God who inspired the words of the law of Moses, and since he, as God, cannot lie, he is not going to, in the gospel, teach ethics or teach morality which changes or, or even that would just slightly alter the ethics and morality that he has taught in the law and the prophets. Well then, I, I've kind of hammered down the point of what it is that this text isn't saying. Well, what, what is it saying, though? So what, what, what does Jesus mean then when he employs that phrase, you have heard that it was said to those of old? What he is referring to is not the law, is not the scriptures themselves, but what Jesus is responding to is the way that the scribes and the Pharisees had egregiously abused, twisted, and distorted the true meaning of the scriptures. This is consistent with what Jesus says elsewhere when he tells them, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men, Mark chapter 7. And so notice Jesus does not say, as it is written, or have you not read, as he says elsewhere, but rather what he says is, you have heard that it was said to those of old. He speaks not of the written words of Scripture, but rather he is responding to spoken orally passed down traditions. I would just add that Jesus' teaching on the matter would contradict uh, the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church, which places her tradition alongside the teachings of Scripture. Now, it is important that we establish this principle at the outset because it's going to apply for the rest of Matthew chapter 5. And so with that 
preliminary work done, we move along to the core of our passage. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. Now, obviously, that, that phrase, you shall not murder, that's the sixth commandment, but the phrase, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment, that's, that's not uh, found in the commandments. And so what Jesus, he, what he is invoking here, which will be seen more clearly in the next verse, is that the commandment in the law of Moses against murder had been interpreted so woodenly, too rigidly, by the Pharisees and the scribes who, you know, they followed the letter, but they didn't follow the spirit. Uh, they were so focused on the details that they did not see the principles as one misses the forest for the trees. Because you see, what was going on in the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees is they thought that, you know, so long as they did not literally, uh, physically murder someone, then, then everything was all right. Uh, just like the rich young ruler said to Jesus, you, you know, about the law of Moses. He says, all of these I, I have kept for my youth. But as we see in verse 22, mere outward, mere external conformity to God's law is not enough to truly obey God's law. There must be something internal inside each and every one of us. In verse 22, Jesus says, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. When Jesus uses the phrase, but I say to you, he is demonstrating firstly that he is an authority above the scribes and the Pharisees, as well as the fact that as the God who initially gave the law, he is the true interpreter of it. So the Pharisees, they abuse and they distorted the scriptures. Jesus, as the one who gave the law, is going to correctly interpret it for them. Again, not that he's changing the law, but this is the correct and proper understanding. What we see at the, and you look at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it says in Matthew 7, verses 28 and 29, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so the thing then that Jesus is authoritatively teaching is that everyone, quote, who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Notice he parallels that the phrase that was added to the sixth commandment will be liable to judgment. And so what Jesus is essentially teaching us here is that the mere emotion of anger itself deserves the same judgment, deserves the same punishment as the physical act of murder. He drives the point home so clearly when he adds, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. When Jesus speaks of the judgment, the, the council, and the hell of fire, it's commonly understood that he is speaking of judgment both on earth, a physical council like the council of the Sanhedrin, as well as eternal divine judgment from God. 
the hell of fire. That word hell, translating the Greek Gehenna, refers to the place of judgment, final judgment in the afterlife, opposite, of course, of paradise. And so the specific charges that Jesus mentions here, they're not really that varied. You know, being angry with your brother, uh, insulting your brother, that word insult translates to Greek uh, raka, which essentially means like empty-headed. It means like nothing. So if you say to your brother raka, you're saying you have nothing. And, and the other thing he says is when you say to someone, you fool, which has the connotation of them being an unrighteous or immoral person. All of these things are very much related. And Jesus says that, that these things, being angry with someone, insulting someone, calling someone a bad name, all of these things which may seem so insignificant to you, Jesus says that they are worthy of eternal hellfire. Before we get any further, I think that the passage is going to be very confusing unless we define then what we're talking about. Uh, let us note that Jesus here is addressing what we might call unrighteous anger and not righteous anger because there, there is a difference and that can be seen in the life of Jesus himself. Now, the King James actually makes this clear when it says, whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause, that, that phrase, however, without a cause is based upon a textual variant, hence modern translations leave it out. But the same meaning can still be inferred when we evaluate this passage in the context of the rest of the Bible. Jesus Christ himself, who said these words, and as God, I think he has a right to define them, was a man who, you read the Gospels, and there were times when Jesus was angry. Uh, but when Jesus was angry, it wasn't a sin. Uh, for instance, when he sees the, the temple of the Lord, the house of his beloved father, being perverted by merchants and money changers, we read in the Gospel of John, which is quoting from the Psalms, that zeal for his father's house consumed him. You know, often zeal is talked about like it's a bad thing, like it's a, a pejorative to be called zealous. And yet when Jesus Christ saw the things of God being utterly disgraced and disrespected, zeal consumed him. And he made a whip of cords and, and he physically drove people out of the temple. He flipped over the tables of the money changers and so on. And so in that, that scene of Jesus Christ, you have a man who is passionate, you have a man who is bold, we have conviction, we have energy, we have spirit, we have a righteous anger, and to use the words of Psalm 69, we have a man who was consumed with zeal. Another example, you know, one of the things that's interesting is Jesus says, whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And yet in chapter 23, verse 17, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you blind fools. And so, you know, this might look at, at first glance like one of those things that the atheists or the skeptics might, you know, delight themselves thinking that they found a contradiction in the Bible. But the only reason that we would say those are contradictory is if we take a, a shallow surface level handling of the text. Uh, what, what we have to look at then is when Jesus became angry, when Jesus used strong, harsh language, read the, read the Old Testament prophets, read, read the prophet Ezekiel. I mean, there are some things in the prophet Ezekiel I, I would not want to read out loud in front of my grandmother. And so 
when, when Jesus or when the Old Testament prophets, you know, display anger, they use this, this harsh language, we have to look at, well, what is their motivation? What motivated Jesus in the instances in which he became angry or used harsh language against the Pharisees, what motivated him was zeal, was passion, was devotion for the things of God. Uh, that, that is not a sin, to become passionate and zealous for the things of the Lord. You know, for instance, when we look at, you know, the Pharisees in the New Testament and, and their errors and how they had corrupted true religion, or when we look at the false religions of our day, or even when we look at other immoral atrocities such as, you know, the violence and, and so many of these things that take place in our world, or, or terrorism, or, or genocide, or the abortion holocaust that has taken our nation by storm. When we look at those things, it is, it is appropriate. Nay, nay, it is a requirement of Christians to become angry at those things. You read the Psalms and, and you find what we call imprecatory Psalms there. And Psalm 139 verses 21 and 22 says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. That's, that's the word of God saying that. And, and so there, it, it is a, appropriate and it is a right thing and it is a, a just thing, a, a, a required thing, I would say, to become angry, to be righteously passionately against when people are breaking God's law or when they're when they're harming others and, and the like I would also add that you know there are times when it is appropriate to be angry with someone for the sake of their good for example you know you might be angry with a, a loved one who is is, is using drugs you're you're angry that that they're using drugs that they're harming themselves and so if, if you were to say something sharp to them, it, it's not like you have just this irrational hatred for them, but what you have is, is a love and, and a care for them that is expressing itself in this way. And so that is what we would call righteous anger. And Jesus displayed that. The prophets displayed that. Uh, the Apostle Paul displays that in the book of Galatians, which was some of the things that, he, you know, he says, you foolish Galatians, who, who has bewitched you? And he uses the strong language. But what motivated the prophets, what motivated Jesus, what motivated the apostles was not the same thing that so many times motivates our anger. You see, most of the time, our anger would be, is what we would call sinful anger, unrighteous anger. When we are angry with someone, not because they have sinned against God or they're oppressing other people, but simply because they have offended us. Uh, this is unrighteous anger, for it springs not from our love to God, but from our love to ourselves. I would also just add here that, you know, because of the fact that we still have our, our flesh, Oftentimes, even our righteous anger can be mixed with sinful anger. It's like, you know, there's that old saying of Augustine, there's a pound of flesh in every good deed. And so even when we are displaying anger at things that we know we should be angry about, we still need to make sure that it's not just the flesh, 
but that it's true devotion. And we should pray as the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. It's also from Psalm 139. And so with that uh, distinction in mind, what Jesus is essentially doing here is he is making application of, he is applying what he earlier said in the Beatitudes. Uh, For instance, in verse 8 of Matthew 5, Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart. And so, Think pure in heart. Christian morality, Christian ethics are not merely an external thing, but they are to take a deep root within us and extend far further than the mere acts of our flesh. Because ultimately what God is concerned with is what lies within our hearts. That is what God is concerned with. Is God, of course, concerned with what we do with our bodies? Well, obviously, but what we do with our bodies flows from what's in our hearts. So, you know, you see in the sixth commandment, God outlaws murder, but from whence does murder spring? Well, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15, verse 19, he says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And so Jesus, Jesus reveals to us as our true prophet, not only does God hate murder, but God hates the heart condition of unrighteous anger itself, which comes from the heart stained with sin that ultimately leads to murder. Because you see, here's what happens. And this is why this is such an important thing for us to understand as Christians, especially when we evangelize and we try to preach the gospel every single time and i think i can say that i think i can say every single time that i have tried to share the gospel of jesus christ with with a family member or with a co-worker or whoever and 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 what you because there there is a certain sense in which we we can we use the law of god uh in order to make known people's sins to them because no one knows that they need a savior unless they know that, that they're a sinner, sinner. And so you'll, you'll try to you know, explain to people that, that because of the fact that we've broken God's law, we, we've fallen in Adam, we need Jesus Christ to save us from our sins. And what do people tell me? People say, well, I think I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Or, or, or they'll say something, well, I don't understand why you're saying like, you just believe and then God will forgive you. I mean, I mean so you're, you're telling me that, uh, that if Adolf Hitler said, Lord, please forgive me of my sins, then you, your Adolf Hitler would be in heaven? And so what's going on in the person who raises those objections? Well, what happens is in our human nature and, and in our false pride, what we do is we like to compare ourselves to other people. You see... We don't want to hold ourselves according to God's standard because God's standard is, is perfect and we fall short. So what we do in our flesh is we, compare, we choose a person that we think is worse than us. We choose Adolf Hitler or we choose Joseph Stalin or Osama bin Laden or you know, these guys and we say, well, you know what, at least I'm better than that. You know, at least I'm better than Hitler. At least I did not kill over 10 million people. At least I'm not Chairman Mao who killed over tens of millions of people. And so, 
you know, we like to think that we're good compared to those guys, or we think that we're good compared to an, an axe murderer or someone who, who, who beats their girlfriend or something like that, and we think that we're better because we've never done that. We've never sinned as they had, you know, and, and that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And that's why Jesus is responding to this. The Pharisees looked at the law which said, thou shalt not murder, and they believed themselves to be all right because they had never murdered anyone. And that's how, that's how everyone you are going to evangelize with thinks. They think that they're a good person because they've never raped or murdered anyone. But you know, it's like everyone walks around with this crazy idea in their heads that, that they're good people. And Jesus, what does he do? He says to the Pharisees, and he says to you tonight, and he says to the people that you're going to go out there and witness to, he says, do not think for a moment you are better than they. Think of, and it's like the, the, the Pharisee who, who prayed with open arms, looking up into heaven, thank you, God, I'm not like other men. But that's what we do so often. And so that's what we do when we compare ourselves to Adolf Hitler and say we're better than him. Jesus says, don't think for a moment that you are better than Adolf Hitler. Don't think for a moment that you're better than Osama bin Laden or Chairman Mao or these other guys. He tells you, Jesus Christ tells you, that the seeds of unrighteous anger in your heart alone are enough to send you to hell. Now, you, I mean, you may be thinking to yourself, well, you know, I, I'm pretty much, I, I'm kind of an all right guy. Well, okay, let me ask you this. Have you been, ever been angry with someone? Without cause, we defined that earlier. But have you ever been angry with someone? Have you ever gotten impatient, said a sharp word? Have you ever, you know, flipped someone off in traffic? Have you ever, you know, gossiped have you, about someone? Have you ever reviled and ridiculed someone else's name? Have you ever done those things? If the answer to any one of those questions was yes, then you deserve to go to hell right now. Now, you may object, and you may say, well, I, surely just being angry with someone is not the same thing as murder, right? Well, if that is your objection, then you object not to me, but you're objecting to Jesus Christ himself in the Scriptures. 1 John 3.15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. It can't be said any more plain than that. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. That anger is such a heinous and grievous sin can be seen in other texts of Scripture. Proverbs 29, 22, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. James 1, 20, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so Jesus's, not, not Logan's, Jesus's definition of murder and sin searches to the very depths of our innermost being, does it not? Because when I described anger in that way, there was none of us, myself included, who can say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm good, I, I'm taken care of. No, no, if we truly understand the words of our Savior, you know that, that, that myself, perhaps more than anyone in this room, because I can't see your hearts, but I know my heart, have broken God's law. And Jesus says in this passage of Scripture that what I have done 
makes me deserving of the hell of fire. And it's like what Paul says about the law in Romans 3. He says that the law is given so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. You see, what happens is the, the sinner, the unrepentant, unregenerate sinner, they, they try to concoct some schemes in their heads or they, they compare themselves to someone else and, and they try to make themselves, you know, feel like they're a good person. And, and, and by the way, that's, that's sin because if we are good people, then we don't need a Savior who's Jesus Christ. And so they, they do this. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, making themselves believe like they're good people. And what the law of God does, apply to, apply to their hearts, says, no, 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 no. There is no one good. No, not one. And so, you know... As I say these things tonight, I mean, it's just appropriate to say, let us all examine our own hearts. Uh, let us ask the Holy Spirit to reveal unto us the error of our ways, that we might repent and confess our sins to God. And the promise of the Scriptures is that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. And so... You know, these are, this is not a popular way to preach. And perhaps that explains the number of people in this room tonight. But, but this is what needs to happen if we're Christians. We need to ask ourselves these questions so that we understand our sin, we can understand how great of a Savior Christ is. Have you ever lost your temper? You have committed murder of the heart and are liable to judgment. Have you ever harbored a grudge against another? You have committed murder of the heart and are liable to judgment. Have you ever insulted and reviled another? You've committed murder of the heart and are liable to judgment. Have you ever gossiped about someone, slandered their name by speaking harmful things about them? You've committed murder of the heart and are liable to judgment. God, God's law searches to the very depths of our hearts and of our souls. Does it not? Does it, does, does it not penetrate you? And, and in there, there are many things which are detestable to him. And what happens is we must become convicted of our sin. We must realize truthfully how awful, how disgusting, how despicable we really are. You see, the error of so much modern Christianity is that it paints man as though he were this poor victim as though he were this poor victim. And we try to make it like the gospel is about, you know, unlocking our true potential and all these very things. And it's very much focused on, on this egotistical, pride-centered boasting of self. But we must never forget that the first words Jesus spoke in the Sermon on the Mount were not, blessed are the proud, blessed are, you know, these different things. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the state that our hearts must come to, to truly understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must understand that, you know, recently I was having a conversation with, with a family member, and they said to me, Logan, I don't understand why you think that you're better than other people. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, you think that just because I don't believe in Jesus or, or homosexuals don't believe in Jesus that we're going to hell. And I say, okay, but that doesn't make me a better person. If I, if I go to heaven when I die... It ain't because I ain't done nothing wrong. It ain't because I haven't sinned. 
when I get to heaven, it will be solely because of the work of Jesus Christ, God the Father's election of my soul, and the Holy Spirit's regeneration. It's the work of the triune God which saves sinners. So as Christians, I, I can say those words, but we actually have to believe that. We can't go around thinking that we're better than others because we're not. We just have a Savior. That's, that's what we have to, to, to really trust in. And so someone may object to some of the things I'm saying tonight, like, like I'm going to sit there and tell you that you're liable to the judgment of murder just because you're angry, and they would say, well, Logan, you're just being a, a legalist. I answer, well, that's not legalism. A legalist is someone who is focused merely upon the external things. I am not here talking about external things. I'm talking about what's in your heart. Furthermore, all that we are doing here is we're just expounding the true meaning of the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, when we realize our sin, when we realize our own depravity, it is expected that we might become stricken with despair and, and stricken with grief. But, but remember this, the reason why I'm doing this, the reason why I want us to examine our hearts and to see the sin that therein lies is not just so that we can like sit here all solemnly and stare at our navels, but so that acknowledging our sin, we can confess that sin to the Lord God Almighty who loves his children and is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That's what we want to move towards. I mean, when we are uh, evangelizing with others and they raise up some of these objections that I have, you know, it's not like we're just trying to win arguments with people. We want to take the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of forgiveness of sins and salvation, and we want to bring that to them, that the Holy Spirit might open their hearts so that they can accept this message. And so, Jesus Christ is the one who, in these words here in Matthew 5, acts as our prophet. Uh, Jesus, we, we call him our prophet, priest, and king. And here he is acting as our prophet. He is re revealing to us the truth of God's law and how we've broken it. But remember that Jesus Christ, the same one who is convicting you of your sin, is also our great high priest. And, and for all of those, he is the high priest for all of those who would call upon his name. In faith. And the Bible says that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 1 John 2 1. And so we know that our anger is murder. We know that murder violates God's law, and God's law requires a blood sacrifice for sin. Jesus Christ became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, dying in our place, bearing our transgressions in His body, taking on the punishment from God that our sin requires, so that in Him, by our faith in Christ, in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. Dying to our sin, we are united to Him in His death, and in His resurrection, we rise again to walk in newness of life where we no longer have to be enslaved to our sin. We no longer have to be enslaved to the murderous anger that defiles our hearts. In Jesus Christ, we not only have forgiveness of sin, but we have restoration and freedom from our sin. You see, salvation is more than just like you got your ticket punched and you're getting to heaven and you don't need to worry about it. 
Salvation is about dying to yourself and experiencing life right now. Jesus said that whoever believes on the Son has eternal life. It's a present tense thing. And so since we are new creations, since we are risen and, and born again, in these next few verses, Jesus is going to graciously give us some practical ways in which we can live out our newfound realization of how sinful anger is. In verses 23 through 24, Jesus says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So Jesus, he, he makes mention of this practice of offering a gift at the altar, and the altar, of course, in this context, is the uh, physical one that was in the temple at Jerusalem. And, and, you know, for many people, they had to travel hundreds of miles to even get there, which makes it more striking that Jesus would say, if you have unreconciled differences with your brother, leave. Go first reconcile with your brother, then come back and offer the sacrifice. So, you know, in the New Covenant church, the, the era of redemption that you and I live in, we obviously don't have a physical temple. Uh, there's not a physical altar located in one particular location somewhere on earth. But the church is the temple of God. And God dwells or tabernacles inside each and every believer, each and every one of us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so the sacrifices that we offer to God are not material but they are spiritual. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so what am I saying here? Well, you know, when we go to a, a church service or we, and, you know, and we're praying and we're, we're singing or we receive the sacraments and we listen to the Word of God being read or the Word being preached, you know, or even you know, in our own private lives with ourselves or with our families when we're engaging in the Word, we're praying with one another and, and, and these different things which are done unto devotion to God, those, these things that we do, that's how we uh, make sacrifices. It's like Jesus' death was a sacrifice that takes away our sin. And so we don't need to make that kind of sacrifice. The sacrifices that we offer are sacrifices of praise and worship. But what is Jesus saying here? He's saying that before we offer up these sacrifices, if there is a conflict with a brother that, that has not been resolved, we must first go to our brother and reconcile with them. And what is interesting, you know, Jesus says, quote, your brother has something against you. It may appear that your brother is the one who's angry at you and you need to go reconcile with him. That, that would be a strange thing considering the fact that in verse 25, the accuser is not the one who is judged, rather the accused. And so how do I interpret that? Well, I interpret it like this. In any and every relationship, whether it's marriage, whether it's family, whether it's your brothers and sisters here at the church, whenever conflict arises it is probably the case that there is fault on both sides. 
Like when a, if a husband and wife are arguing with one another, it is, is very rarely the case, if ever, that it's like one person is completely in the right and the other person is completely in the wrong. And we, we can apply that to all of our relationships. With your relationships with other believers at the church or in your family or friends, if there's ever conflict, it's probably not the case that you are completely in the right and they're completely wrong, or vice versa. Nine times out of ten, maybe even 100% of the time, there is sin on both sides. And so, well, what do we, what do, we do with that? Well, it, it means that each person has a duty and a responsibility before God to be reconciled with one another. Remembering that love covers a multitude of sins and to be angry and to hold a grudge is sin. And so the way that we would apply this text is like this. You know, if, if you are here tonight and, and, you're, and you're worshiping God in this place as we sing and as you hear the word, etc., and yet you have some unresolved conflict in your life which leaves anger and bitterness in your heart, then shame on you. And, and, you know, thanks to the Internet, I can say that if you are, you know, driving around or in your car or you're listening to this sermon on a podcast and, and, and you're remembering some conflict with a brother that you have not reconciled with, well, then, then shame on you. Now, I just add as, as a qualifier, there are times when we cannot really actually resolve a conflict and yet it would still be appropriate to worship rightly. Uh, Romans 12, verse 8 says, if, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And so what, what is going on in that text? Well, the Apostle Paul acknowledges there are going to be times when although we've done everything in our power to, to reconcile and to be at peace, the other party might not be willing. And one of the hardest, toughest most important life lessons we can ever learn is you can't control someone else's heart. You can, so, if, if you, so what, Jesus, what, what needs to happen there is if you try to be at peace with someone and they still are perpetuating the anger and they're still fighting, well, there comes a point when you have to just leave that to God uh, and go about your duties. You cannot control someone else's heart. So that would be an abs- an exception, but, but if it is because you are unwilling to make peace with someone, well, then it lies on you. And so with that being said, it reminds me of the many places in the prophets where, you know, God tells the Israelites that, you know, I, I hate your sat, uh, burnt offerings and I hate your new moons and I hate your Sabbaths. My soul abhors them. And, and why was God saying that? I mean, after all, God is the one who commanded the Israelites to make those sacrifices. God wants his people to worship them, but he hates it when they worship him hypocritically. Uh, he wants worship to come from clean hearts that obey his laws. I think this is seen very clearly. Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? If I could just explain that text a little bit. There, there's a contemplation there. What does the Lord want from me? Does he want me to, to, to bow down? Does he want me to offer up a calf or, or these other things? And it's like, listen, God did command those types of sacrifices in the Old Testament. But, but before you even consider offering up an animal, God wants you to walk humbly with him and to obey his law. And so you may think to yourself, well, I know God wants me to go to church. I know God wants me to do these things. Yes, he does. He commands you to. But, but what he wants to happen is that your heart is made clean. You know, the only, uh, you know, we believe as Protestants in what's called the priesthood of all believers. So we believe that all of us have a responsibility to, as we, that's why after the Reformation, churches began incorporating hymns and psalms to sing together so that everyone is a part of this worship. And, and I believe that's a, that's a biblical thing. But, but God only wants you to worship him in that way if you're truly walking in his statutes, walking in his ways. And obviously that only comes by grace. We do not save ourselves. But God wants you to know him. He wants you to walk with him. So it is when we have confessed our sins, it is when we have made peace with our brothers so far as we are able, that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts may be acceptable in his sight. In verses 25-26, Jesus says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lease your accuser, hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Jesus tells us here an earthly parable from which we can extrapolate a heavenly principle. The picture is of a man who has wronged another in, in some kind of financial sense. He, it looks like he owes this person money, but he's yet to actually pay the debt and to reconcile the, the, the feud there. In the normal course of events, what Jesus is describing is that eventually that man's going to be put in prison, and after he's in prison, well, he no longer has the ability to right the wrong and, and to pay the debt and to correct his errors. Jesus says, for he will not get out until he's paid the last penny. And while, you know, I suppose that could very obviously be taken just as a shrewd piece of practical advice, you know, take... Uh, responsibility for your actions to avoid the consequences and so forth. But I think, obviously, we'd say Jesus is teaching a much more urgent principle. Now, there is going to come a day when you will no longer have the opportunity to right the wrongs in your life, to seek forgiveness and reconciliation from those who you've transgressed against. The day that you die, all of your opportunities to do things in this life will have ended. You know, in the next chapter, in verse 15, Jesus says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Now, we have to understand that in the proper sense. We do not, like, forgive people in order to earn forgiveness, but the reality is that when we've been forgiven, when we have been given a clean heart, when we've been born again, 
and we've, we understand how much we've been forgiven, we will desire to forgive others. Therefore, if someone is unforgiving, it demonstrates that they have not been forgiven. And then when they die because of the fact that they have their many sins, their breaking of God's law, they are liable to God's eternal judgment, and they are put in a place where they no longer have opportunity for repentance, to right the wrongs that they've committed. Therefore, it, it is exceedingly urgent that we would all look into our own hearts and, and to get before God on our knees, and that we would seek Him in, in repentance and, and faith, believing and trusting in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins, and asking for the help and aid of the Holy Spirit to help us forgive others. It's like time is running out, so we must come to terms with our accuser. And so I would like to close with this thought. There is a principle in Christian ethics which says that anything God forbids, the opposite is commanded. And anything God commands, the opposite is forbidden. And since anger and murderous thoughts are forbidden in the Scriptures, we must positively seek to be loving and peaceable. Ephesians 4, verses 31 and 32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Would you join me in prayer? Father God, Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for sending your incarnate son that he might become our prophet, our priest, and our king, securing our eternal redemption. Lord, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells inside each and every one of us, dear Lord. Father, we just ask that your word would have a transforming, would have a powerful impact upon our hearts and our souls, that we may not only believe these things with our heads, but that our theology would, would be displayed in our lives as we live amongst other people. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.